What did set in quickly was that in prison, while I was in prison, I had seen some of these symptoms. Individuals talking to themselves, kind of what they would call bizarre, odd behaviors. And that's when I began to make the connection that, okay, this is something that is widespread. As a person that's not educated about mental illness and has no awareness of how it affects individuals, you tend to, you know, label it maybe as, oh, that's crazy or, you know, that's kind of weird. Once here and beginning to learn about it and really understand it, I then began to make the connection and I was like, wow, I've been around schizophrenia, bipolar my entire 12 years on death row and didn't even know it. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode 12. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you adapt and thrive. Today's episode reaches out all the way from my little office in Dubois, Wyoming, to the fourth floor of the Twin Towers Correctional Facility in Los Angeles, California. Because it houses 2,200 inmates, more than half of whom have been diagnosed with severe mental illness, Twin Towers has become known as the largest mental institution in the United States. Speaking with me today is 42-year-old Craig Armstrong, a mental health assistant on that fourth floor, which is known as the Forensic Inpatient Step-Down Unit, or just FIP Step-Down. It was originally set aside as part of an L.A. County program for about three dozen inmates, each of whom had agreed to take their meds, who had been referred by a doctor, and who were generally regarded as safe to be around others. The heart of the program has been to bring in healthy inmate volunteers from the men's jail across the street to live among the fourth floor patients and serve as aides and caregivers for the mentally challenged inmates. Today, the program has grown to serve over 100 men and has been approved to grow to 600, men and women, by 2025. Cragen has worked on the unit since 2016 and has been, with a former coworker, instrumental in its growth and recognition for making a big difference in the day-to-day lives and wellness of the mentally challenged patients he serves. Craig Armstrong was born in Los Angeles in 1981 and was reared with one sibling by a mom who tutors in elementary school and a truck driver dad whom Craig has not seen or heard from since he was about 15. Craig enjoyed sports, was interested in music, and wanted to be a lawyer when he grew up. When he was 20, Craig got caught up in the strife between street gangs that ended up with three dead, and Craig was accused and convicted of their murder. After serving a dozen years on death row at San Quentin, Craigan's conviction was overturned by the California Supreme Court. In 2016, he returned to Los Angeles either to receive a new trial or to accept a negotiated plea deal. While that time-consuming process goes forward, Craigan has thrown himself into his volunteer job helping mentally challenged inmates to steady themselves with the basics, keeping a schedule of proper hygiene, hobbies, and group activities such as karaoke, and having someone close by 24-7 to speak with in a crisis. He trains new volunteers how to work with patients using a program he developed with his former co-worker, Adrian Baruman, who has since been transferred to a state prison. 
At the end of this episode, I will share details about the book Craigan and Adrian wrote about their experience as mental health assistants, plus their website, inmatementalhealthassistance.com. In a recent interview with Los Angeles Times reporter Thomas Kerwin, Craigan posed an interesting question and was quoted as follows. How do you provide treatment in a facility that's designed for incarceration and punishment? That would be like trying to run a diet clinic in a fat burger. To learn the answer to that question and more, it's my privilege to welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Mr. Craig and Armstrong. How you doing, Cliff? It's great to be here. <laughs> it's good to have you here, Craig. The noises and the, and the background are all part and parcel of uh, incarceration. I appreciate your being willing to do this despite the distractions. And yeah, no problem. I send every guest on the podcast a questionnaire, and you mentioned that Windsor Hills was a memorable school for you. Why was that? Well, Windsor Hills was a magnet school, the school where I probably took home homework and actually had to do it, and not your average homework, homework that requires a little bit more uh, uh, interaction with your parents, and yeah, and that's probably the first school I had a girlfriend and I just remember going there, you know, my grandmother taking me to school every day while mom went to work. So that's probably why I, uh, you know, chose that school as, as one of the most probably impactful schools in my younger years. You also wrote that you didn't look up to anyone, but you learned everything from your mother. Talk about that a little bit, please. I don't want to offend anyone, but I, I think as a male, like, you, you, you want to look up to a male. Um, I can't really remember anyone in my younger years, as far as a, a male, uh, a man, or a model to imitate as a young boy that I really looked up to, I really learned strength and you know perseverance and how to cope and deal with life and the struggle from my mother because that's r- really all I've seen and, and that's the person I was closest to. That's a nice tribute to your mom. Before we move on, could you talk just a little bit about what it was like having the dad you had? Scary. All I've seen was was violence. Uh, My dad fought my mom pretty much every time I could remember them being together. So it was a lot of chaos. It was a lot of noise. It was a lot of commotion. It was always, it was a lot going on. And, you know, I remember fear and you know when they did separate it I ended up staying with my father for a period of time and it was a, a little more pleasant with just me and him when him and my mom got together it was a different story but we were still in a situation where we were struggling you know poor he had to work most of the time but the times we were together you know it wasn't that bad but it was very short. I ended up going to live with my mother again. So, um, And then from there on out, it was more visitation-type situation. So it's not much of an experience that, that I remember as, as good or that that's really how I would describe it. I do know from experience that when people who are warring are then separated, it's amazing how great it is to have no yelling. Right. And no violence, certainly. Correct. Yeah, it's like when they together, for some reason, 
you know, he's a different person. And then without them being together, you know, he's like the dad now. So that's just how I uh, experienced it. And, and when I even look back on it now, you know, he wasn't so bad with, with without her. And I'm not sure exactly what the, the real issue was. Uh, that's kind of their business. But as a man now, you know, from some of the things that I've learned and conversations I had with my mother, it had a lot to do with the way he was raised and, you know, maybe some insecurities and, and things that he was dealing with that um, he, he just didn't know. This call is being recorded. He didn't know how to control or address at that time. That might have been your first exposure to somewhere on the spectrum of mental illness. Is that possible? With my father? Yes. Well, I guess there's different levels of, of mental illness. The mental illness that I'm experiencing now, I wouldn't equate that with my father, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there could have been some forms of uh, challenges. I'm not sure if it required treatment, but it definitely, it, I think it's an indicator that, that, that there needs to be some type of counseling or help. I'm not at the diagnosing. I'm, I'm just do my part as a peer and help people that I'm around. I read with interest the entire L.A. Times article, and that was my introduction to you. I got the impression that you didn't really have much experience with mental illness at the time you saw that there was an opportunity to volunteer for a, a gig next door. Is that the case? Right. Well, it was, it was a situation where I was walking into it and the, the severity of the, the mental illness that I was surrounded by, I had no clue that individuals were suffering or living with challenges and maybe we could call them disadvantages or disabilities of that magnitude. I didn't know clinical terms or names for it. What did set in quickly was that in prison, while I was in prison, I had seen some of these symptoms with individuals in the prison setting. And that's when I began to make the connection that, okay, this is something that is widespread. I just wasn't aware of it until I got here, and then I started to reflect back and say, okay, I've seen this. I couldn't explain it or identify it as a mental illness, but I've seen some of these same symptoms on death row, individuals talking to themselves, kind of what they would call bizarre, odd behaviors. When I was on death row, I just... I was so caught up in my situation trying to get through it that I would kind of see it in passing and kind of just look at it like, wow. And in some ways, you know, you, you as a person that's not educated about mental illness and has no awareness of how it affects individuals, you tend to, you know, label it maybe as, oh, that's crazy or, you know, that's kind of weird. And that's what I've seen in prison and kind of categorize it that way, unfortunately. And then once here and beginning to learn about it and really understand it, I then began to make the connection. And I was like, wow, I've been around schizophrenia, bipolar, my entire 12 years on death row and didn't even know it. And in a sense, you know, that's kind of scary because there's a lot of these guys that kind of fall through the cracks in the incarcerated system and they end up in some of these environments where no one understands them, understands their symptoms, 
has no clue about mental illness, and they are made fun of. They're stigmatized. They're treated with violence because persons just see their behavior as odd or weird or strange, and I, I was one of them. Now, I never was violent towards anyone. I just kind of nonchalantly looked at it and kept going. That's why, as, as mental health assistants, it's important for us to recruit and try to get guys from these populations to do this kind of work because now if I'm ever in an environment where I see an individual with these same symptoms, I know what to do, I know how to educate others that's around them, and potentially protect or, or save them from some type of harm because of the education I have now. So this wasn't my first experience. This just was an experience now that educated me about what I'm around, but I've experienced it, you know, probably my whole incarceration and never knew what I was actually witnessing. How long did it take you to get, I don't know, comfortable is the right word, but at ease around the population that suffers so? I don't think like you're ever comfortable because, you know, every day is it's different. Every day is new. You never know what the experience is going to be. Sometimes they're great and happy and fun, and some are sad, and then some turns into violence because of the illness. The unpredictability, you never know what a patient is hearing or what their voice or the internal stimuli is encouraging them or telling them to do. So it's it's always kind of like an awareness that you have, not a paranoia, like you have to be constantly vigilant, but more, you know, the population that you're helping is, is severely challenged and you have to be aware of what's happening at all times. You have individuals that can hurt themselves at any time, can potentially hurt another person. Jail in general is just a tough place to get comfortable. You're constantly learning and growing and trying to stay solution-oriented, particularly trying to do this type of treatment or care in this type of facility. There's obstacles all the time. There's a fine line between safety, security, custody, and treatment. So I don't think you're ever comfortable. You're just trying to do your best to help people who would otherwise really wouldn't get the help they need. In the stories in the L.A. Times written by reporter Tom Kerwin, he told a story up front about a mentally challenged inmate named Ray who was in a real crisis. He described how you were able to talk him down. First question, how is that person doing today, and is that a typical scenario for you? Hopefully he's doing well. We do everything we can with our guys while they're here, and once they leave out the door, all we can do is hope the best and hope that the impact and, and some of the things that, you know, we try to instill lives on. That particular situation has occurred a few times before. It's not that typical. The setting we're in is what they call high observation housing. So it houses individuals that have some of the most severe mental disorders probably in the United States or the world, some of the most serious cases. It's inevitable. Things are going to happen. However, the setting keeps individuals pretty balanced and calm despite some of these severe challenges. You would think if you know anything about this environment and mental illness and how incarceration agitates the illness, you would think those situations would occur all the time, but they, they don't. We do have our issues, but that one in particular, I can say since I've been here, has probably happened maybe three times. And that's because environment is key. 
you have medication and things of that nature. But environment, we believe, is probably the most effective medicine when treating individuals with severe mental challenges. I was so impressed to read about that environment that you're creating, that by your presence you're creating. This particular situation, the patient was in the actual day room kind of recreational area where activities are happening. He's not intentionally being malicious or wanting to really harm anyone. He's having severe delusions. A lot of times when the presence of law enforcement does arrive, it, it creates a, a kind of a, a paranoia. So now you have the individual feeling like he has to protect himself from really a, a situation that he caused. So I never want to put custody or sheriff's department in a bad light. They're here for safety, and that was their main concern also. We just have two different approaches. My approach is I'm going to try to get him in. And when they view someone in a situation like that, their main concern is safety as well. We have to control it. And a lot of the times with this population, it can get out of hand because they're struggling to follow commands and they're not really understanding what's going on, and sometimes force is necessary. And so I just felt it was important to try to go ahead and see what I can do, you know, given the fact that I live with them, I'm here with them every day, and I'm probably the best individual to try to coax him back into his cell. Fortunately, I was successful. You know, obviously, the sheriff's department is concerned about my safety as well, so they did talk to me about that. But at the end of the day, as mental health assistants, we're in a position for various reasons, and as much as it kinds of, you know, rub against policy or law enforcement expectations, we are in a position to de-escalate a lot of that, and I felt that was one of them. I just try to do my part, and obviously, you know, I have to listen, so if that was to happen again, I would probably go ahead and take it in, but our vision is to be able to have relationships, custody and, and law enforcement and the sheriff's department where we're given that trust and that opportunity to step in and intervene, which is hard. We know that's hard for authority figures to allow us to do that. And to a certain degree, we've grown and developed to that point where they do give us a lot of trust to do that. But in certain situations, which is understandable, they want us to step aside. And that one, you know, I just didn't. I'd be interested in knowing how many mental health assistants are in your pod and what's the typical day like for you guys? Yeah, so a typical day for us really starts at 5 in the morning. We're up, most of us. The reason for the early rise is because once the patients come out their cells, which they typically come out between 7.30 and 8, it's really no time for nothing else. So anything that you want to get done, whether it's a workout, you know, some reading, we're trying to immerse ourselves in different educational opportunities. So those couple of hours in the morning are very valuable towards other objectives that you have. There's now 13 mental health assistants. It's now two floors. You have 141, and we've expanded late last year into 161. So you have about nine right here. You have four upstairs on 161. And a typical day is programming. And, you know, you have mental health assistants pretty much in charge of all programming, administering groups and different activities throughout the day. So on a typical week, you'll have a Monday. That's when they come out, and we do double scrub on, on, on a Monday. Double scrub is where each 
individual has a particular chore, you know, we clean up the whole pod together, the cells, all the furniture and everything in the pod. And the purpose for that day is not to just to clean a pod or clean a jail. It's to teach and help individuals learn some habits that they probably most likely didn't have before they came to 141. The population is majority individuals who were homeless or just weren't taught um, certain skills and habits or didn't learn them properly. So it's an opportunity for us to teach and help individuals develop hygiene, cleaning, and just keeping yourself well-groomed and keeping your area clean. Also, just giving 100% effort. That's one of the things that I'm real big on is, you know, if you're going to do something, no matter what it is, do it all the way. Do it right. You know, I have a saying uh, every Monday, you know, I tell them before we start, everybody, we're going to stay off Half-Ass Avenue because Half-Ass Avenue <laughs> is crowded. It's crowded. It's bumper to bumper. We're going to go the extra mile. That's like carpool. You 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 fly. And it's not many people on the extra mile because they want to be half-assed. So we're going to be on the extra mile. Give 100% because the thing is, is, you know, they may think, well, I'm just cleaning the sink. I'm just cleaning the toilet. It's the jail. But in the process, you're developing character. You're developing a trait. So if you do it halfway, unbeknownst to you, when it becomes to something you really want to do or something big, that same trait remains. It doesn't go away. So we can get in the habit of doing things 100% every time, going the extra mile on the smallest, most trivial things. You're developing yourself that way. So now when it comes to the things that are, are important or big or something that you're trying to achieve, that same habit, that same trait aids you now. That's one of the things that I, I really try to get them to understand because they'll wake up and say, oh, we got to do this cleaning. It's just a jail. Oh, you got to clean the jail. Okay, we're not focused on the jail. We focused on ourselves. This is about developing ourselves. I'll clean this whole pile myself. That's not the, the thing we're trying to achieve. We're trying to develop us and traits and habits, healthy things that, that's going to stick with you long after this jail. Another thing we focus on is, is teamwork. You know, how do you work as a, a team? No one starts first. We all start together. We're going to all finish together. We're going to do it as a unit, as a team, because you can do a lot in life alone, but you can only go far with others. You're going to need a team. How do you work with a team? And you may have to lead. How do you do that? So we're going to focus on teamwork, working together, and not arguing over who's going to do this. We're going to have positions, everybody in their position, and we work together. And even the smallest position is probably the most important because it allows the, the bigger positions to thrive. So that's what we're focusing on is uh, teamwork and healthy habits and doing things 100%. And that's really what that day is about. The rest of the week is Tuesdays and where we go out to outdoor rec, do haircuts and play basketball and listen to music, try to get a little sun, whatever comes through the screen, and a little physical activity. Our afternoon parts are focused on more therapy and psychoeducation groups and core competency groups. Wednesday, play board games and kind of socialize the system music. And then Thursday, we have a karaoke day. Just try to get into your creative side a little bit. And maybe you got some hidden talents that you didn't know about, so we can give an opportunity to explore that. And then Friday, we kind of wind down. Movie day. 
But our afternoon parts around 2 to 4, those are more of our groups of mental health assistants. We have our curriculum, which we teach core competency and life skills and self-awareness and really about mental illness. We have so many patients that have been told and diagnosed with schizophrenia and told they have schizophrenia all their lives, and you ask them what are the symptoms, and they probably couldn't name more than one. So we think it's important for individuals to understand what they're living with, how to live with that in a way where you're not doing anything to exacerbate the illness, but to help it. And if you don't know about it, you could potentially be doing things to make it even worse and harm yourself. So we, we try to educate, and just for empowerment, you know, I believe if anything you've been diagnosed with from a doctor or anyone, you should be the main one that know all about it. That's what our groups focus on. And obviously court competency. You know, a lot of the patients are deemed incompetent to stand trial due to their illness. So in order for their cases or their situation to proceed, they have to understand a general knowledge of how the court system works. And you know, a lot of patients, they just don't. They have no clue of how the court system works, and legally they can't receive a sentence or their case cannot really be adjudicated until they understand what's really happening. So that's how a typical week would operate here. The psychosis you mentioned exist on the inside as well as on the outside. What are some things that you've learned that can make a person's mental illness become worse? that can be avoided by that individual? So number one, one of the things we experience a lot is, unfortunately, our population, I would say up to 80 to probably 90% are, are meth abusers. They abuse methamphetamine. And that's one thing that will have an individual deteriorate to a level to where they just can't really function. That's number one, drug use, substance use. Two, refusing treatment. And that's just a part of mental illness. You're going to have patients who just don't want to take their medication. And that's really why we're here. That's one of our uh, most important roles is promoting being open to treatment, whether it's injections or oral, just being open to treatment. Because what we've learned is that those who are open to treatment early on, they tend to fare better long term. It's been proven that the more psychotic episodes that you have, it damages your brain. It's taxing and it affects you negatively, which ultimately makes the illness worse. It can even be to a point to maybe where it becomes resistant to medication because you've gone so long untreated. And I think if you just think about any other illness, if you were to have a diagnosis of cancer or some type of other illness and you don't treat it, it potentially become worse or even fatal. Mental illness is no different. You need treatment. You need help. And that's how we explain it. And we believe that's one of the things that can cause it to get worse is going long periods of time. And a lot of guys aren't diagnosed until they come to this jail. So we have individuals who are young, 18, 19, and they first learn about their illness here because this operates as a hospital. Now, unfortunately, you're not brought here in an ambulance. You're brought here in a police car, but it does operate as a hospital, and this is where people learn of their first diagnosis and first get on medication. On the flip side, you have individuals that have gone extensive periods of their life 
they've been diagnosed, but they haven't been in a situation where they received treatment and their illness has become worse over time. You know, there could be times where the medication isn't that effective. So what we encourage is being open to treatment, staying consistent with the treatment. It's also been proven that if you start and stop medication, that can be maybe even more harmful than not taking it at all. It's a difficult thing to achieve, but those are the the two things that I would say that can have an an impact on whether an illness gets worse or better. I tell them we've been dealing with mental illness from the beginning of time. We just didn't know what it was in the early centuries, but there was a point where they were taking a piece of your brain out. They were doing lobotomies, and they had all these different treatments. But we've now, in this generation, we've moved to a something that's a little better. I mean, if you study medications and you learn about some of the side effects and, you know, how they interact with a human being, you know, it is. It's it's tough to tell an individual to take that every day, but it's the best available right now. It's just about finding the right regimen, something that is not too adverse to you or causing you a lot of discomfort, although there are going to be some side effects. But fortunately, in this environment, the way it's designed, individuals can get on the right regimen that does not have that much of an impact on them side effect-wise because we do have the support now here and a team where we can constantly reevaluate and work with patients to get their regimen down to where it's almost like there's no side effects or symptoms from the medication, where they're fine with it. And that's one of the keys to helping an individual achieve that particular regimen that that fits them, and you have a better chance of an individual staying on the medication. But I also know the flip side of being incarcerated and not being open to treatment. Your situation moves extremely slow. It can even halt things in certain situations, and then you tend to linger and languish in a jail setting because of not being open to treatment. And then you you see some of the the symptoms of the illness. It's a a delicate line that you walk when you're asking or encouraging individuals to be open to treatment, um, especially as a peer, but you also know the other side of, well, we want you to move forward and get out of here and move on with your life. We're constantly figuring out ways to help individuals just in some ways accept it, accept the illness as you, as part of you. I think that's one of the ways it kind of lessens some of the stress is really accepting it as you and it's not some separate kind of thing that you're trying to get rid of. You're living with it. You find the best treatment. Maybe just that perception alone, you begin to use it as, as, a, as a tool or a benefit. We have a lot of groups on voices. Most of the patients here hear voices. 80 to 90% of them are mean, mad, negative voices. And I always wonder, why is that the case? I think I've met only two patients who their voices were happy, good voices. And, you know, this is just something that I think, you know, I could be completely wrong, but I believe it has a lot to do with what you're experiencing at the time which can cause them to be negative and mean and tell you to do self-harm. But I also think it's internal resistance towards it, like constantly fighting against it that can potentially cause it to even be stronger or persist in a way to where it's agitating you. I think just having kind of like a mental acceptance of, you know, this is 
something I'm living with. This is part of me. I think that can be one of the ways to maybe establish a healthy association with the voices or the illness to where it's not something you're constantly fighting against every day and, you know, banging your head and, and, and harming yourself trying to get rid of. It's more of accepting this is who I am, this is what life has given me, and this is how I'm going to live with it or deal with it. Sounds like you're saying if a person's in fight mode all the time, resisting what their environment is presenting to them, then it sort of stands to reason that the voices in their head might be in fight mode also. Right. What you constantly resist or focused on or, or push against pushes back. That's something I share in the groups, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Craig, and to what extent do you offer counsel and support where diet and exercise are concerned? You know, you got guys here, they want to eat all day, and we're not passing out the most healthiest snacks. That's something that we're currently working on. There's individuals in the department that's noticed this. They're doing things to try to improve the diet and try to kind of move away from some of the unhealthy chips and cookies. We're big on, you know, not just have your hand out all the time. So if they do ask for a snack, give me 15, 20 push-ups. You know what I mean? Just, just do something for it. We don't want them leaving here, and we don't want them thinking that everything's just going to be handed to you all the time. Like in life, you don't have to you don't have to put in some work. You don't have to earn it. That's one of the ways where I keep them active throughout the day. And sometimes I'll raise it. I'll tell them, you know, you know, prices went up, chips, 50 push-ups today. But more than anything, I do it by example. I work out every day. They see me. They see how I look, and they want to achieve that. And I tell them. This is how I do it. And that's one of the biggest motivators, I think, is being the example. By us staying in shape, by us carrying ourselves a particular way, by us keeping our room clean, by us keeping our pod clean and our, our area and our floor clean, naturally it becomes contagious and individuals want to follow it. Sounds to me like that would translate out into life on the streets as well. If there are people listening who have family members or friends who are struggling with mental illness, some of the things you're describing could work there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone needs an incentive. People get up and go to work every day because they're going to get paid. You know, incentives are good. Ultimately, we want the biggest incentive to be purpose or investment in self, you know, those things. We can start with, you know, because we pass our coffee and, and, and snacks and things like that, those those will get you going. But it's really an opportunity to have a conversation and kind of open to you up to what is, what is the biggest incentive. Are you in a position to see success stories? And if so, does one or two come to mind? Yeah, you know, I always say, you know, we, we're seeing success daily. Individuals just brushing their teeth on their own. That's, that's, <laughs> that's big. You have individuals that haven't brushed their teeth in their life or never even thought about showering regularly. They didn't see the importance or the need. So just to encourage an individual and talk to them about it and be here with them over time and then just to see them do it, that's like one of the most rewarding feelings. That you feel like you really got somewhere to not have to say nothing. He just went and got in the shower. We talking about that, you know, like, guess what? To me, it's the, the little thing that you're seeing that most people wouldn't even pay attention to, but because we're living with them, we, we know how far they've come. To see just those small little wins, those 
those are like yeah, those are like big successes to us. Wow, great answer. Craig, and what have not we talked about so far that you think is important for people to know about your world? Yeah, I just think that the objective of, of what we're doing is more than just treating or helping our patients. That was our primary goal, places we can intervene and kind of bridge the gap. But the mental health assistants in particular are individuals who are incarcerated for very serious offenses for long periods of time, life sentences, 20-plus years, or even myself being on death row. The consensus thinking about individuals like ourselves is that they need to be locked away. They should be given an opportunity. They need to be punished. It's more of a kind of a retribution thinking. But what we've learned through this is that the best way to help individuals restore and repair and help them understand the impact they've really had is to be in a a role that is purposeful, that allows individuals to really reflect and learn about themselves through working with individuals that we're helping right now, helping other people, and being in a space where you're not in survival mode. And you have a lot of people come to this floor. You have a lot of people who work here who says, why do they get to be in that type of environment? Why do they have those little amenities? And why them with those charges? And I always say, why not? I've been in environments where there's no opportunity. I've been in environments where, you know, you don't have nothing coming. And they're, they're some of the most violent, bloodiest places on the planet. And, and they're called prison yards, and that's not going to help anyone. There's talk of public safety. You take these individuals out of society and you put them in these environments and don't give them nothing and punish them. Well, the community, the public are the people who was working in these environments. We have nurses, doctors walking through here, custody staff. These are people who are, quote, unquote, in the public. They're the community. That's not public safety. Because when you're in survival mode, all you're thinking about is me. You're thinking about what I need to do to get through this. I don't care about no one else. I need to survive. And what happens is you fail to ever realize the impact you had on the outside, on people. You don't have a chance to think about it. You're almost in, in victim mode, in a sense. Like, why is this happening to me? You know, I need to figure this out. You never have a chance to think about the harm you've done or the individuals you've impacted. But take an individual and put them in an environment where they don't have those challenges or those mindsets or or that type of pressure to survive. Then there's time for reflection. They're open to education and receiving advice or instruction. You cannot teach no one that's in survival mode. They don't care. They're not trying to hear it. I need to eat. I'm cold. I need to figure this out. And no one improves that way. It's almost impossible. And it's the same thing for our patients. You know, there's other floors where they're hungry. The food they're passing out here is not meant to feed a grown man. You have patients that are hungry. They're cold. They're not coming out their cell. There's no way you're just going to go tell them, hey, can you take your medication? Um, Here, I want to teach you about court. I want to teach you some of the things you need to know to get out. They're not trying to hear none of that. It's the same way with individuals like ourselves. You put us in an environment where we're in survival mode all the time, then you're going to have some of the worst environments in probably the world. And then the justice system isn't perfect. We all know that. 
So the individuals who you may have thought that I'm just going to put them away, we're going to lock them away, and they're going to learn their lesson. Okay, you have individuals that they get out all the time from an error that the court has made, a new law or a movement that happened that caused people to get released. So now what do you have? You have individuals who've been in some of the bloodiest environments, some of the environments with no opportunity. They haven't learned much. They haven't had an opportunity to develop a skill. And guess what? They'll be out, and most likely they'll be in a neighborhood near you, and you will see the results of that. So the real solution is, like, we have to have a shift in the mindset about punishment. Now, I'm not saying you don't have to have no punishment, but it has to be measured in a way to where it's effective, but majority treatment opportunity to try to help individuals repair. Because majority of the individuals that are incarcerated for serious offenses and just overall come from environments with no opportunity, no resources, lack of education, and a survival mode. So what you do, you you take them and you put them in another environment that's um, what we just call gated. It's the same thing. You call it a correctional facility. This is the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and then you send a person there with life without parole. Where does the rehabilitation come in? Why is an individual that has life without parole worried about rehabilitation? Most won't. Now, you'll have a select few that can overcome that sentence and strive and continue to want to educate themselves, but that's a handful. The majority get in a, what do I have to lose mindset? I don't care. You have to have support for them, too. You can't expect everyone to just be strong and overcome this and, and fight through it. It has to be a little bit more support. I mean, if you look at my situation and my case in my life, a lot of people will tell you the system worked. They'll say, look, you came in for this, look at him now. The part about that is it takes so much fortitude and I mean, you got to be so strong to go into an environment like that and see people commit suicide and drug overdoses and appeals being denied and it's just a, a dark cloud and to still push through it and overcome it and have hope. Everyone not going to do that. You'll have a, a group that can do that. But the majority will succumb to it. That's why some of the environments are violent. That's why some individuals commit suicide. That's why some individuals develop mental disorders. Um, they fall victim to substance use disorders and drug use because it's tough, it's hard. And if you want individuals to repair and ultimately learn a lesson, you have to teach it to them. You can't just expect them to just, well, he'll put them there and he'll learn. Okay, he's going to learn a lot of things that aren't good. So that's the message, and this is not a neglect or a discount towards anyone who experienced harm. Like, I'm extremely remorseful. That's one of the reasons I rise every day to try to get better and do what I can to show the remorse. I can say it all day, but I think remorse is an action. And being in this space, representing a larger population of lifers and people on death row and people who are incarcerated for serious offenses, to try to demonstrate that we can contribute, we, we still matter, you know, we still here because a death sentence really is a message that you're no longer needed. Society doesn't want you anymore. There's something wrong with you, and we have to you have to be exterminated. Like you don't belong here, and so it was important 
to show otherwise, hopefully that can be a message to those that can make changes that maybe we kind of got it wrong. Maybe these individuals still can be of value. And that's the best we can do for people who've experienced harm is to try to prevent it that way. But sitting in a cell, rotting away, that's not going to help nobody. I mean, there was death row before I got there. I think it was over 500-some people there. That didn't prevent me from going there. So it's not a deterrent. If it was, it would have been one person there, maybe two, three, and people would have said, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to. You have over 700 people there, and they're still coming. So there has to be a shift in the way incarceration is carried out, and we believe what's happening here on 141 in the Twin Towers is the model. There are three parts to the Stay Free Forever podcast. second one has me share some recent work from someone on a course, in this case a cognitive awareness course, and read you the question and the answer and talk about it a little bit. Okay by you? Yeah, that's fine. This is from a Colorado man in his 20s or 30s, and the question was related to one of the stories in the Cognitive Awareness Workbook. It reads, what can we learn from Cooper and the Johnson cousins who overcame their adversity? And this fellow wrote, surviving hardship and willing yourself to move forward builds added strength to tackle new challenges and face future failures. Flexibility allows you to be resilient and durable as things change. It teaches you to be open to learning and agile as you figure out what to do next. As we learn from our struggles, we develop a deeper understanding of our capabilities and limitations, which ultimately leads to personal growth and maturity. Experiencing adversity can foster empathy and compassion within us. What do you make of that? I don't think there's no more to be said. He kind of captured it all. Always said nothing happens to you, it happens for you. Hmm. And if you can have that perception, then you will handle challenges in life and situations a lot more effectively. They will become of benefit instead of detriment. And then ultimately you're open to the lesson. Oftentimes we experience a situation and we get a little stressed out. You kind of like ball up in a sense. And when that happens, you are closed off to the lesson. You, you, you kind of miss it because you're looking at it as why is this happening to me or this shouldn't be happening to me? Why did I deserve this? Instead of looking at it as this, this is happening for you, the Latin word for problem, the Latin meaning for problem is to throw forward. So problems, they're there to push you forward, to help you grow, learn, develop, and ultimately become a lot stronger, gain a lot more wisdom and knowledge, because they don't stop. So you're going to be dealing with them for the rest of your natural life. So the best thing to do is become stronger and develop ways to to deal with them um, with ease. And I think that comes from embracing them and knowing that they're there to help you grow. It's just like a, a teacher. When you go into a classroom or you're sitting down and they say, we're going to give you a test, the teacher hands you a paper full of what? problems. The teacher's not giving you problems to hurt you or to push you backwards or giving you problems because we know problems 
They help you grow. They help you learn. And then you pass those problems. The next ones become easier and easier. And so I think that's what I took from that. I think that's really the essence. You know, I pray. You know, I think a lot of times people pray for less problems or get the problem out the way. But I think you should pray for, for, for strength for the problems because they're not going anywhere. There's, after this, you know, in my life, it'll be something else. But everything I've learned from this and and gained from this will make that next situation much easier. Like, I'll deal with it with a lot more grace and calmness, and, and then I'll learn from that one, too. The best gift is now you can help someone else through, the, through a similar problem. And as for the third part of the Stay Free Forever podcast, Cregan, uh, we are each called upon to share a quote or a passage that has meaning for us or uh, we find compelling. Who would you like to go first? You go first. All righty. What I have comes from one of my favorite poets, a professor in Poland named Czesław Miłosz. This little poem, it's, it's only two stanzas, six lines each. It doesn't rhyme. It's called Faith by Czesław Miłosz. The word faith means when someone sees a dewdrop or a floating leaf and knows that they are because they have to be. And even if you dreamed or closed your eyes and wished, the world would still be what it was. And the leaf would still be carried down the river. It means that when someone's foot is hurt by a sharp rock, he also knows that rocks are here so that they can hurt our feet. Look. See the long shadow cast by the tree, and flowers and people throw shadows on the earth. What has no shadow has no strength to live. What I like about that poem is it talks about the fact that if we're here, if we're casting a shadow, we've got a purpose. And sometimes that purpose involves pain, but still, it's pain for a purpose. Sort of ties in with what you were just saying, don't you think? Yeah, you know, I think you know everyone should have a purpose. Uh, I think purpose and passions are two different things, but I think everyone should have a purpose. Um, I think everyone should, you know, have a a, a, a fight, something they're fighting for. You know, it just it just it just keeps you, it just keeps you going. It keeps your fire burning. It keeps you, it keeps you sharp. It keeps you aware. It keeps you it keeps you ticking, and it, you know, it gives you something to wake up and jump out the bed in the morning. It's going to be about helping people. If it's not helping people, then it's not your purpose. But, yeah, I, th- I think that everyone should have, you know, a purpose and a passion, you know, something that you really, really enjoy doing, something you love, uh, you get lost in time doing. You know, I think that's important as well. What's your passion? When I was in prison, you know, it wasn't a lot of opportunity. wasn't many ways to make no type of income. But I found, like, I was into sports. You know, I would watch it, but I never knew about sports wagering. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't even know it was actually a profession. And I just got all into the numbers and the the, the investment part of it, but more of the discipline, patience, and money management. 
you know, that part of it because it carries over into other parts of my life. And I just I just like I just love it. And and once I found out it was a profession, then I, I you know, I started thinking about how to, you know, do it legally and, and hopefully, you know, make a living from it. What's your quarter passage today, Craig? Something I live by is live fearlessly and deal with it, you know, because I think you're going to have to have a little muster in this thing called life. Like, you don't have to be able to deal with some stuff, you know. But always remember something from Denzel Washington. He's never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Always took that to mean you can't take nothing with you. How it's set with me is, is the gifts you have. You should discover your gifts. What is your gift? What are you good at? What is your purpose? You know, what are you here for? And you should find it or develop it and and give it. And so the U-Haul analogy is like, don't don't try to take all that with you. Discover it and share it because you have one. And then the next one is, you know, I think at some point the old uh, IQ test was how to connect nine dots in a box without lifting the pencil. And the only people who passed that test was the ones who went outside the box. And and what we're doing right here, the environment we're in, the message we're sending, the way we're developing treatment, the mental health assistant alone is thinking outside the box. And I would encourage everyone to begin to think outside the box a little bit, take a little bit of risk, and you will see some unimaginable results. Craig, and I can't tell you what a privilege it's been to spend these couple hours with you and for the effort and thought that you put into this and and into your career right now. So my main message is thank you, sir. No problem. It was a pleasure. Podcast listeners, as promised, here is information about the book that Craig and Armstrong has written with co-author Adrian Baruman entitled The Solution, Mental Health Assistance, Bridging the Gap to Effective Treatment, as well as to their website, inmatementalhealthassistance.com. Please note that the spelling of assistance in both media is plural, A-S-S-I-S-T-A-N-T-S. The solution details effective strategies and successful methods for treating and caring for the mentally challenged. It is presented as a three-part analysis on how patients, inmates, are treated, the structure under which treatment is delivered, and the goal of the mental health assistants who deliver the treatment. It also highlights the effort and teamwork necessary to make this treatment a success in the incarcerated environment. Finally, The solution is a demonstrative guide for those who desire a successful treatment program of their own. It includes a detailed description of treatment medications, purposes, and potential side effects. It is available at bookbaby.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and more for about $7 for the ebook and $15 for the paperback.
The InmateMentalHealthAssistance.com website tells the story in words, video, and pictures of this remarkable program and these remarkable men. It features testimonials, handwritten with pen on paper, of inmate patients who have benefited. One wrote, This program has changed my life completely around. I can now understand what I am fighting against. For jails and other institutions looking to start a similar program, the authors make available their detailed training program for volunteers. The site includes ways to buy their book, as well as donate, so that they may provide books and materials to visitors, as well as to the population they serve. InmateMentalHealthAssistance.com Thank you for listening. For not only is this a pressing issue within jails and prisons, the lack of treatment and support for people with mental illness is contributing to our homeless issues throughout the United States and other countries. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email Clifford at stayfreeforever.com.